Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, Josiane Petit. Welcome to the podcast, Josiane. Thank you so much for having me. Will you spell your name for our listeners, then kind of visualize visualize it? Yeah, absolutely. It's J-O-S-I-A-N-N-E, all one word, last name P-E-T-I-T, like Pettit. And we're glad you're here. Um, Josiane Daughter is here with us in the podcast room coloring. So if you hear another voice in the background, um, that's Josiane's beautiful daughter. We're here to talk about um, race issues that are topical in our country and in our state and in our city. Black Lives Matter. Um, Josiane is very involved in this space. She's a black uh, member of our community. Um, will you give us just a little bit of a background on your, your education at BYU, what your education is and what you do now for a career? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, attended BYU very much against my will. Um, it was on my list of places not to apply. And so that's where Heavenly Father sent me. I eventually did uh, complete a degree in sociology with a family and criminal justice focus. Uh, two years ago, I got a paralegal certification through Weber State, and I currently work as a paralegal who does family law and criminal defense. And thank you for what you're doing for so many people that need your expertise. And I assume you're helping some of the marginalized that don't have a voice or don't have privilege in our community and representing them and helping them. I definitely try to. Affording an attorney is expensive, though, so um, that's a privilege in its own right. I'm not involved in pro bono work yet. Um, Talk about just what's important to you. We're going to talk about, and I I do a lot of LGBTQ podcasts, as our listeners know, but some of these other topics I don't even sometimes know the right vocabulary, but Black Lives Matter is something that's important to me, and you're deeply involved in that. You're involved in Utah protests. You're organizing protests. You have ongoing dialogue with the police. Um, You founded an organization called Mama and Papa Panthers. Just talk about maybe your goals for your work. Yeah, so um, what's important to me is my family. What's important to me is my daughter and the kind of Uh, world that she's going to inherit from us when she's an adult. That drives everything that I do. Um, The work that I do, it's it's interesting. It's kind of twofold. So Mama and Papa Panthers, uh, yes, there is a nod there to the Black Panthers, specifically because uh, the Black Panthers were an unapologetically Black group. And I wanted to indicate to the members who were joining Mama and Papa Panthers that it would be an unapologetically black space. However, what we in the group have in common is that we're all parents of black children. So there are black parents with black children. There are white adoptive parents with black children, white biological parents of black children and and other uh, racial groups. And what we have in common is that we're parents of black children. And so I wanted to create community for us so that we could um, pool our knowledge and resources in terms of how do we advocate for our children and, and make things better for them. And so that is that is the work that I do. That is what I'm passionate about. 
what I learned, though, in doing that work and in operating in that space is you cannot talk about creating community, creating a safe space for black children without also talking about social justice. The two are intertwined. Our children cannot have a peaceful life if there isn't a criminal justice reform and police reform. And so I began protesting um, and organizing protests even. It's not um, the main focus of my group. In fact, I'm the most radical of my group. Um, but yeah, it is something that I do. It is something that members of my group do participate in from time to time. Definitely not a requirement. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the the focus that I have there, but it, it sprung from just my need to protect our black children. Talk about, and as an ally, I know you do a lot of education and it's really should be me, the ally doing my own education because it takes emotional capital for you to <laughs> teach all of us. Um, talk about your hopes for your black and the mama and Panther, mama and papa Panthers hopes for their black children and some of the the worries they have that wh- white privilege or white parents would never even realize. Sure. And and to be uh, very clear, there are, I would say it's probably half white parents in my group. Okay. Um, they, they have black children, though, and so therefore they're a part of our community. Um, the concerns and, well, the hopes for their children is much the same as the hopes of any parent for their child. You want them to be happy, healthy um, safe. And so for us though, as parents of black children, the expectation of happiness, the expectation of safety, the expectation of health, um, aren't always a given based on our efforts. There are a lot of uh, social factors that impact that. And so concerns for our, our parents, when, I mean, actually, this is what started the group. I went to a ward one day and I was speaking to this mom. She has a black son. His, uh, he was 11 at the time. She's white. She has adopted this black son. And she mentioned that she has been in the same ward ever since she adopted her son as a baby. And she was seeing the transition in the attitudes of her ward family Um, towards her son where he went from being the cute adorable kid to all of a sudden they're they're talking about him as though he's a thug and referring to him or his actions as thug-like and so she was just absolutely devastated because if anyone would have given her child the benefit of the doubt it would be this ward family who had seen him grow up and they weren't and so what um what hope did he have in the community? And so um, concerns such as that are, are very real for, for our parents. And that's the experience in what should be the safest place in an LDS congregation. That's the, that mother opening up to you is what led you to start Mama and Papa Panthers. Yeah. 
because I, I was telling her some of the work that I did just so that I could feel safe in the community. Uh, getting to know my police department wasn't anything that I started out of this altruistic hope of bettering the world. It was just I felt like people do not kill people that they know. And so if the officers got to know me, then they would be less likely to shoot me at a traffic stop. And so I started getting to know uh, police departments and I was telling her what I had learned. And she said, I wish there was a way I had access to the information that you've gained through your experience. And I was like, well, it's all in my head, but I guess I could create a group and Mom and Papa Panthers was formed. That's great. And our listeners, we've done a few podcasts. If you go to listenlearnandlove.org and you go across the top podcast, our podcasts are in categories. There are a few other podcasts. I've called them Black Latter-day Saints just to help bring perspective that Josiane is doing right now. Um, there's a quote I love by Carol F. McConkie, a former first counselor and young women's general president. She, she says, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't marginalize people people marginalize people and we need to fix that so when i think of what you're doing it seems to me you're trying to match the gospel of jesus christ because i don't think there's any any marginalization in christ's pure teachings and ministry absolutely not i mean i definitely wouldn't have joined the church if i felt like there was i wouldn't have gone on a mission for the church if i felt like there was a problem fundamentally with the pure gospel um the things that we commit to when we're baptized. However, the application definitely leaves a lot to be desired and um, oftentimes leaves out brothers and sisters on the margins. And you've stepped away from the church. Um, tell our listeners, is this, is this the reason you've stepped away? Ultimately, yes. However, I want to qualify that because I fundamentally resent actually when um white individuals who have walked away use race as the reason they walked away as though anyone who finds an issue with racism must walk away what does that say about the black latter-day saints who continue to stay are these white individuals somehow more aware of racism than them absolutely not and so it's not that i walked away because of race issues i walked away because psychologically it was too much for me to go to church and to um deal with a lot of the cultural shortcomings surrounding race that happen and play out in congregations. And it was no longer um, mentally healthy for me to be in that space. I have been in therapy for years and years and years trying to um, unpack a lot of the trauma that I've gone through with regards to church and race. Um, so it's, yeah, it's not as simple as race. If it were, then there would be no black members of the church, but there are plenty of active black members of the church and believe you me, they're not active because they don't understand racism. That's a really thoughtful answer. I love, um, this term you use cultural shortcomings. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of grace in that. Um, that's a very kind statement as somebody who's felt the pain and the trauma mm -hmm. of our culture. And so I, I credit you 
for, I just sense you've tried to do everything you can to make the church work. You've served a mission. You've spent hundreds and hundreds of hours um, helping our church succeed, bring others to Christ through a restored church. But I recognize because of the cultural shortcomings to use your vocabulary, you've experienced pain and trauma. Definitely. And to be emotionally healthy, I, you've needed to separate yourself. And one of the purposes of this podcast is to try to reduce divisiveness between, in this case, well, in this part of our podcast, between someone who, like me, who's fully in the church mm-hmm. and someone who's stepped away and just try to see us as the same human family and also validate your experience. Sure. And even though I haven't had that same experience, I learned that that doesn't cost me anything to validate your experience, your pain, and we could probably do a two-hour podcast on (laughs) the pain and the trauma that you've experienced. And so part of this is for um, active Latter-day Saints to address cultural shortcomings or Sister McConkie's quote, um, people, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not marginalize people, people marginalize people. Yeah, I mean, just speaking to that, my greatest heroes, even after stepping away, is Jane Manning James. You know, she is a black Mormon pioneer. She crossed the plains with her family. She stayed faithful to the end. Um, I had the great honor of playing her in the play I Am Jane. I actually performed it at BYU. And, um, you know, there's so much about her life that resonates with me. But on her, you know, one of the things that she said towards the end of her life was that her testimony um, that day was as strong, if not stronger than the day she was baptized. And this is someone who had seen lynchings. This was someone who had experienced racism, very overt racism, um, not just at the hands of church members, but at the at the hands of church leaders. And yet that is that is the conviction she had in the gospel. And um that resonates with me. That's actually the reason why I refuse to resign. Um, I just feel like I have an inheritance in this, um, in this gospel, in the church that was hard fought for, um, by people like Jane Manning James and Elijah Abel, um, and their faithfulness that enabled me to, to get sealed in the temple, to go on a mission, you know, things like that. I refuse to just throw that away. Um, if if folks want me gone, they're going to have to excommunicate me, but I'm not going to make it easy. That's I love that segment. And I, I, you know, there's some similarities between my LGBTQ guests that have left the church. They're not asking for others to leave the church and if it works for them. But they're also little resentful for straight people that have left the church that use the LGBTQ narrative as a way to um, pull others out of the church. And I think that's what you said for white people that have left the church, not to use race as an issue to pull other people out of the church. Yeah, I mean... It's sort of an agenda-based <laughs> um, privilege they have that 
seems disingenuous. I'm just trying to make sure I understand. Absolutely. So for me, you know, I've been asked the question so many times, like, why'd you leave the church or why'd you get baptized? For me, it's really simple. So when I got baptized, I got baptized because I felt like Heavenly Father told me that was the right decision for my life at the time. And when I walked away, it's because I felt like Heavenly Father told me the sacrifice that I was making by being an active member of the church in good standing was no longer required of me. Very simple. Um, It's not about testimony. It's not about knowing the history. Believe me, I know the history. Um, Yeah. And I don't, I don't want people weaponizing my struggle and my trauma to shame others into a path that they feel is right. Um, Because ultimately like, it's not their right to do so, number one. And number two, there are very many Black um, Latter-day Saints who are active. And how dare you? <laughs> like, how dare you say that somehow um, your path is more legitimate than their path and use race? No. Find your find your own reasons to, yeah, find your own platform. <laughs> And you're, um, and to use, I think it would be very um, unkind of me to use a story of a black Latter-day Saint that stayed in the church, like Jan Main, Jane Manning James, Jane Manning James, Jane Manning James, mm-hmm. to say, well, why can't you be like her? She stayed in the church, and it was maybe, and even make a narrative that was harder for her than it is for you. Yeah, and somehow say you're not as good a person now because you. And so I recognize that would be a very painful thing for me to say to you. Yeah, it, it's it's fundamentally inappropriate. You, um, no one should be, should use the experience of one individual within a group to tell another individual within that same group how they should conduct themselves, how they should live their lives. The reality is that, no experience, um, no community experience is a monolith. So they're, you know, being a Latter-day Saint, what does that mean? It's not the same thing for everyone. Being black, what does that mean? It's not the same for everyone. And so just because one individual conducted themselves a particular way doesn't mean that therefore that is the roadmap for all individuals of that community. It's really thoughtful. Um, thank you. And I'm with you on that. And, um, I just honor your personal revelation. I tweeted out the other day that um, my personal revelation doesn't give me the idea, to, the ability to judge your personal revelation. Yeah. And so I just honor your path and everything I look to, what Christ taught is I should honor your path and I shouldn't judge you. There was no scripture that gives me the right to judge you. Love my na- Love my neighbor as myself. There's no qualifiers for that. So yeah, when someone steps away from the church, I... I recognize our church is our church is worse off because we don't have you in it, mm-hmm. and that, and I grieve a little bit of that. But I I grieve that. But I don't I don't look at you and say you're the fault of that. I just recognize that we could have done better, and if we had done better, you might be in the church contributing to the church. And I just so I just and I'm grateful for the way you continue to serve and help our community do better. Are you okay with all that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, 
recently I, I had this um, epiphany about my journey within the church and just kind of some of the ways I've conducted myself on social media and whatnot. And, and the realization that I had was there is a lot of grief surrounding um, surrounding my experience with race, surrounding my experience with the church, uh, particularly with the church. I am... Um, my conversion story is something that I still very much value. Awesome. <laughs> um, my my conversion story is something I still uh, very much value. My um, experience as a missionary is something I still very much find value in. I have... I, I served in the Florida Tampa Mission, Spanish speaking, um, 2009 to uh, 2010. Yeah. And... Um, I still have connections with members and even investigators who never joined the church. Um, and I'm still friends with these people. So, and I also recognize that my membership in the church has afforded me a lot of privilege. You know, we talk about white privilege a lot in regards to issues of race. We don't often hear about other privilege such as like educational privilege and social privilege and things of that nature. Um, being a black individual who grew up in the projects to be able to comfortably navigate white spaces, that's a privilege that a lot of people from my background do not have. Um, being able to come from such a liberal state as New York, specifically New York City, and be able to comfortably navigate conser navigate con uh, conservative spaces like Utah, that's a privilege. And, and, um, being, well, I'm multilingual, but being fluent in Spanish is a privilege that is a direct result of my membership in the church because I learned it on my mission. And so there are all of these, uh, privileges that I have as a result of my membership, and I'm not going to rewrite the past in order to reconcile my decisions in the present. Um, my decisions in the present are what they are, but I also um, can appreciate what my membership in the church has blessed me with. It's very thoughtful. Great segment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Talk about what led you to do the protests yeah. So here we are in Utah. Protests have broke out. You, I don't know if that's the right word. That I don't want to use any vocabulary that's triggering, like broke out being a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, many people that are close to me have, have attended those protests. So share with us what triggered that and your role in these protests. You know, it's interesting. So my first protest that I ever organized in my life was a year ago in June. There was a 10-year-old boy who had a gun pulled on him by an officer in um, Woods Cross PD. So that's uh, Davis County in Utah. Sweetie. <laughs> um, so the interestingly, the mom is white. She's an adoptive parent. Uh, the young man was is black, a 10-year-old child. And... She wasn't a member of my group. However, she posted about it. The transracial adoption community, that's when um, the parent's race is different than the race of the child that they adopt. Uh, the transracial adoption community is very small. So this woman gets online and is just venting what just happened to her baby. And 
people kept sharing it, sharing it, spreading it, spreading it until the two of us were um, connected to each other, this mom and myself. And um, I mean, if that doesn't hit home the need for social justice work, having a 10 year old child have a gun pulled on him, um, I don't know what does. And so for me, it was important to organize a protest outside of that police department to let them know that when you conduct yourself in these racial ways and you take advantage of a situation, it's not just you are endangering the life of an individual, but specifically here in Utah, you're more than likely going to be killing your ward member's child. You know, I, I really wanted it to be personal for these officers. Um, so that was my first time doing organizing a protest. Recently, I've felt a need to uh, basically have a resurgence of organizing protests because the dialogue around protests has become so racially charged and so politically charged. And in my mind, it's neither a race issue nor a political issue. It's a human one. And so I wanted to use the voice that I have to educate people. Um, I have a different way of protesting than others. I also have a very different experience than a lot of activists in that I have a history of engaging within law enforcement. I have a history of engaging within uh, political circles in order to, to understand. And so because of that background, I feel like I can speak to various communities and make headway ideally. Um, and so that's why I started organizing protests again. Talk about the George Floyd. Did that dial up the amount of protests you were involved with? And I am aware of that. I believe one of the parts of that story in Davis County is it's taken so long for the district attorney, if I'm using the right, mm -hmm. to decide if... The, Whether or not to bring charges. And it's, I saw a story on the news. We're taping this in August a few months ago that it still hadn't been resolved, but because of maybe the pressure you're applying and others... And the TV station's coverage, it sounds like things are being addressed. Definitely. Um, so I recognize the role you're doing and stuff that just kind of slides until the media gets involved or a broader audience get involved. Exactly. I mean, protests are ultimately for spectacle. Protests are to get the media there to provide coverage so that the masses who were not at the protest can see that there is a conversation happening and also that there is a frustration that runs deep within the community. George Floyd, um, that death was really tragic. I, so I live here in Utah and I understand that you have audience members from all across the state, possibly the world. I, um, in order to apply my energies in the most effective way, I have had to take a step back from looking at what is happening nationally, um, the deaths that are happening nationally, because there are so many and just focus on Utah. Um, that is kind of my, my tagline is just let's talk about Utah because that's where I live and, and that's manageable for me. And so what's interesting for me 
um, not so much George Floyd, but that here in Utah, there was an individual, um, Bernardo Palacio Cabajal, who was killed on the exact same day as George Floyd. And uh, no charges were brought in that case. Um, that He was killed by the Salt Lake Police Department. And one of the officers involved in his killing, that was their second on-the-job killing. And yet no charges no administrative leave, nothing. They're still working. They're still out on the streets. And so, yes, George Floyd, um, I appreciate that his death jump-started the civil rights movement in 2020. Um, for me, though, what's happening here locally uh, impacts me more just because I can walk around and, and see these families and speak to these families. Uh, Darian Hunt, killed by Saratoga Springs PD. Zane James, killed by Cottonwood Heights PD. Giovanni, killed up in Bountiful. Um, Patrick Harmon, killed by Salt Lake PD. I mean, we have so many names here just in Utah I can't focus on what's happening nationally. There's so much work to do here in my own little neck of the woods. I think that's smart. And I think it's developing boundaries and sort of where your circle of influence is Utah. And there's a greater circle that you can't influence. And so it probably is smart to focus on Utah. And maybe that's a good principle for all our listeners to that want to get involved in ways to get involved in in circles that you can have an influence. You can't change the whole world. You can't solve every world issue, but it's just where you can make a difference. And everybody's doing that in a different way. Absolutely. Talk about what you'd like to have change. Yeah. So I, um, I want qualified immunity gone. Um, Qualified immunity basically makes it so that it's dang near impossible to prosecute um, officers who kill on the job. Just because someone has had eight weeks of training and has a badge does not mean that they are somehow morally more upright than any other person. I feel like there's this almost sanctity applied to law enforcement, especially by members of the Mormon community, as though it's somehow almost sacrilegious to challenge law enforcement. It's like, look, they're human. They're human, which means they're imperfect. Um, and so can we acknowledge that imperfection and that maybe there needs to be safeguards against those imperfections when an individual is capable, not capable, but is allowed to kill on the job twice and receive no consequences? What other profession would that ever happen in, in medicine, there's malpractice. I mean, as a, a teacher, you would lose your job instantly. What other profession do we just blindly say, well, there must be a reason because that person can do no wrong simply by virtue of the uniform that they put on to go to work. That is a very reckless perspective to have. Um, I understand that there's a lot of people talking about we need greater training. I don't think the issue is training, although that's definitely part of it. Eight weeks should not be um, considered adequate 
training to be able to carry around a deadly weapon and have the discretion on when to use that weapon. Definitely, we need more. Um, we need officers to go through longer trainings, but also there needs to be systems in place where there is accountability for when the law is apl applied inequitably. It's not that these officers are incapable of de-escalation. They are capable of it. We see time and time and time again when deadly um, killers, mass killers, mass shooters are apprehended without incident, and yet a black individual, a brown individual, doesn't have a guarantee of leaving a failure to signal traffic stop alive. That is a problem. When people talk about how they should have complied, we do not live in a police state. Comply or die should not be acceptable to anyone. Um, not obeying someone, regardless of their station, is not a death sentence. It should not be, not here in America. That is not what this country was founded on. Um, so there needs to be accountability for that. And what's hard for me, especially as I engage with in um, predominantly LDS spaces around this issue, is how many people seem to lack empathy. I mean, the most prominent baptismal covenant that Latter-day Saints make is to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. Who else is mourning more deeply than a family that has lost a child, a community that has lost a loved one, and for the response to be, well, you should have, well, they should have, instead of, I am so sorry you are hurting. What can I do to make your hurt less? I don't understand that response from a community of faith. I don't understand that response from those who profess to be Christians when Christ himself ministered to the least of us. Thank you for that segment. And Sometimes I hear a segment and it makes me a little uncomfortable. And you, some of my listeners may have been completely comfortable with what you said. Some of my listeners may have been a little uncomfortable. And I would be open to, I've learned when I'm uncomfortable, that often is where I grow. So hang on to that feeling of being uncomfortable before you just dismiss it is what I try to do. And are there things that Josiane just shared, and this is me just talking to me, that are part of me needing to set aside things that I've picked up um, to better understand black people. And I need to hear black people tell me um, passionately the way you just did to help me look inside and see of things that I need to set aside. So I, I like what you said. Um, and thank you for just sharing that segment. And I think that's the way we grow, is to be stretched sometimes. Um, I, I, I love the police department as a general rule. You know, yeah. I've been fans of the police department. I have friends that are police officers. Talk to those, you know, in our community that, and this is, you know, we kind of get in these binary things where all police are bad and all police departments should go. And I don't think you're in that space. You're in a space where 
we need to do better. So how do I navigate that if I have, and you probably have friends, friends that are, I know you're very connected to law enforcement and have a lot of friends in that community, but some people have disappointed you. So just share with us your thoughts on that. Yeah. So, um, I will never say I have a cop. I have a friend who's a cop as a, as a way to add legitimacy to the words I'm saying, because I hate it when people say I have a friend who is black as a way to legitimize the racist things that are about to leave their mouth. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. Um, what I will say is this, I understand that just because my experience with law enforcement has been largely strained doesn't mean that that is everyone's experience. And I can respect that if someone's personal experience doesn't lead them to feel threatened, doesn't lead them to feel unsafe, doesn't lead them to feel like there is much problem, why they would be resistant to that. What I would encourage folks in that camp to do is consider that the same way being a man, you will never fully understand what it is to be a woman. Appreciate that as a white individual who has not experienced systemic racism or racism um, at the hands of police does not mean that it doesn't exist. And if you can make room for the fact that you don't know everything, then you can consider the perspectives of those who are providing solutions. So one of the things that I tell people is, okay, I'm not asking you to change your point of view about law enforcement. Your opinion is your opinion. This is a a free country. You're, You're entitled to that. But what I will say is, can you agree that holding officers accountable for abusing the trust that the community has placed in them, that that's a good thing. And in my mind, if you feel like law enforcement doesn't do that, well, great. Then no officers will ever be brought up on charges. But let's at least have those safeguards there for those And in your mind, the minute few who will violate that. I don't feel like it's a minute few, but if we can at least agree that those safeguards should be in place, then I get to feel safer and you get to feel like, hey, I didn't betray my uh, law enforcement friends and family. Um, Also, I think things like alternatives to aggressive policing. So, for example, in Utah... Most of the individuals who are killed by law enforcement are shot in the back, which to me is fundamentally disturbing because that means these individuals are trying to get away and they're not posing an immediate danger to the law enforcement officer. So the argument then becomes, well, they could become a danger to the community. Fine. I won't debate that point with you. Can law enforcement use a taser to bring them down and then cuff them so that they are not a danger to the community as opposed to shooting them in the back? Is that an unfair request? I don't think that it is. I don't think that the average person wants law enforcement to be able to kill with impunity. I would hope that's not the... the um, 
the desire of the average person. I can understand why there is some resistance based around the rhetoric that is thrown around. Specifically, when you say Black Lives Matter, people have uh, negative associations if they are in general, if they are white, if they are conservative, if they're Mormon. And so I understand that there are certain things that cause people to close off. However, that doesn't mean that some of the solutions aren't solutions that everyone can get behind. Um, that's helpful. And I just recognize, back to your first point, you're coming this from the standpoint of I want a strong family and I want safety. So one of the things that's helped me understand this space a little bit better is just mothers and fathers talking to their teenagers as they leave driving and just walking them through the steps to take if they're pulled over because their biggest fear is that it might end in their child's death. And that's a legitimate fear. I've White privilege <laughs> is I've never had that discussion with six drivers in our home. My yeah. wife and I have never talked to our our son and daughter about what to do when they're pulled over. Sure. And we've never gone to bed fearful of what would happen in that situation. And I, I recognize that black parents would have fear about that situation. Absolutely. And so, of course, you want to improve the system to protect the safety of your children and the people that are important to you and, and your own emotional health and the heartache you feel for the people that have died in our community. Yeah, it's interesting. I say um, if anyone should understand the the fears and the worry of black communities, black parents, when a loved one leaves the home, it's law enforcement. Our two groups are the only two groups that know what it's like to every single day see your loved one off and be stressed and worried and on edge until they return home at the end of the night and you get to sleep and then you repeat the cycle all over again the next day. And those two groups again are? Um, the black community and law enforcement. How ironic. Yeah, that's yeah. true. And that's not even military families understand it to the same degree because military families, they say goodbye to their fit, to their loved ones once. And the loved one is gone for a period of time. There is anxiety and stress around it, but then they come home and they're safe for a time and you get to enjoy that time quite fully while they're with you. But law enforcement and the black community every single day, that anxiety is there. And I'd, and it's just an insight into you. You recognize that within the law enforcement community, the very community that you are helping us understand needs to improve you. So it's coming back to what you are teaching, bear, mourn, and comfort. Even though there's pain in, in you from that community, you recognize that there's people connected to that community that feel some of the same feelings that you feel and you want to bear, mourn, and comfort because you're trying to live the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, absolutely. I don't, I don't think it makes me any less of a legitimate uh, activist to understand that um, law enforcement families are scared for their loved ones. And I would say they're more afraid now because of these protests. I think that's legitimate. For me, being a member of the Black community, I'm kind of selfishly glad that more and more 
individuals in the white community are now feeling unsafe, not because I want them to feel unsafe, but because by feeling unsafe, they now have an insight into what communities of color have been dealing with for generations. And hopefully by taking part in that fear, by taking part in that concern for your loved ones, for those who maybe they're not even law enforcement, but they're just concerned that there are protests erupting in their city that maybe don't feel safe. If you want things to be safer for your family, can you understand that we want things to be safer for our families? And since we both ultimately want the same thing, can we stop getting caught up in, in rhetoric and in politics and um, in race and work to together towards making things safer for all of our families? I love that. It's a very thoughtful segment. Um, I, I mostly, you don't need to hear this, but this, I put this on Facebook from Benet Brown. Or I put this on Instagram a while ago, and I read this quote about two years ago in one of her books. It's, and you'll have to help me if this is okay. Black Lives Matter is a movement to rehumanize black citizens. All lives matter, but all lives, but not all lives need to be pulled back into moral inclusion. <laughs> and for me, that helped me um, to really embrace the black, the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that from Benet Brown? Is that okay, or is that just okay for white people? <laughs> no, I mean, I often feel like the reason why I do not make more headway with certain individuals is because they do not recognize me as human, which sounds like a very harsh thing to say, but I should say fully human. They recognize me as a biped. They recognize me as someone who can converse in the same language as them. And so therefore, in that regard, human. But they do not recognize me as fully human in that I have hopes. I have dreams. I have struggles. I have pain. I have hurt. Um, I care for my child. I worry for the safety of my child, for my safety. Um, if they truly saw me as fully human, it, I wouldn't have to explain why we're saying Black Lives Matter. Like it, it wouldn't be a, it would be a non-issue because they would recognize that what I am saying is, I feel as though based on the actions of individuals and the actions of systems that are enabled by individuals, that my life does not matter when we can grieve for um, animals. I'm thinking of like the Central Park incident with the bird watcher and the dog. People were more outraged by the woman's treatment of her dog than they were by what she was doing to this black man. Um, then you do not see me. If you have more empathy for a dog, you don't see me as human. And so, yeah, I mean, I think what she's saying, Brene Brown is saying is absolutely right. Yeah, and um, I encourage our listeners to first listen to you and listen, Brene Brown's helped me. Um, during the Black Lives Matter protests, which are still going on, I, I put this on Instagram. Let's don't question LDS members' commitment to the church if they support Black Lives Matter. For many, it's their baptism covenants to mourn, bear, and comfort that is the doctrinal foundation to support Black Lives Matter, which is what you've been teaching earlier in this podcast. And 
I recognize that to me, Black Lives Matter shouldn't polarize us. To me, it it should be um, all lives matter. But to me, the gospel of Jesus Christ is reaching out first to the most marginalized people and bringing them into full inclusion. So I have a lot of privilege. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I could go down the list. And so my job is to do everything I can to reach out and bring others into moral inclusion and, and to amplify like your voice and support what you're trying to do to help us improve. But I've been worried that Black Lives Matter has sort of become this divisiveness thing. I thought it had a chance to really unify us and because to me it is consistent with what Christ did and our baptism covenant. So I just see a, a doctrinal foundation in this. Sure. I think... I think Black Lives Matter as a as the term for the civil rights movement in 2020 because I um, I understand I like that yeah it, it's not that um, yeah regardless of how you feel about the organization the phrase Black Lives Matter is the umbrella under which we we speak about this civil rights movement of 2020 um, I. What I have seen at protests is I have seen men and women, black and white, gay and straight, um, in some instances, officers and civilians, in some instances, militia members and activists stand together, um, mothers and children, fathers and children, vets, um, and civilians. So in that regard, it is bringing us together in a way that is very beautiful. I'm often emotional when I go to a protest and I look out at the crowd and see just how diverse it is. It gives me hope for for the future. Where are we those some lose... of your are those spiritual experiences for you? Um, or are they just emotional experiences? Because you describe yes. that, and I get, <laughs> I get, I I love what you just described. Yeah. So, um, I do feel like the work that I do is a calling. I do feel like my activism is a calling, which is why, even when it's overwhelming, even when my life is threatened, even when people bring my child into it to try and intimidate me into silence, I keep going because I feel like it's a calling, and you don't walk away from a calling that God gives you. Um, we saw what happened to Jonah in the well, (laughs) um, but where we lose the power of the unification of this civil rights movement of 2020 known as black lives matter, um, is when it becomes politicized, which is one group uses what is happening to further their agenda, and that is happening on both sides. This is not a political issue. This is a human one. And actually bringing it back to Utah, I am so grateful for the uh, Senate and the House in, in Utah who held an emergency session on police reform. They passed this no chokehold bill and it passed unanimously in the Senate and almost unanimously in the House. And the representatives who stood before the press said that this was not a political issue. It was not a race issue. It was a human issue. For that to be said here in Utah was radical. (laughs) 
I mean, but it gave me hope if our legislators can can get to that point where they understand that, then we as community members can definitely get there. We need to be having conversations, though, with those who look like differently than us. We need to be having conversations with people who fundamentally scare us in some ways because their views feel so foreign to what we think we know. One of the things I've had to do recently because of the uptick in in militia groups that have come out in Utah in response to these ongoing protests is I've had to get to know militia group members. And if that isn't a scary prospect um, as a black activist going up to predominantly white militias, I don't know what is, but what I've realized in speaking to individuals and giving them a chance to explain their perspective and being able to share my perspective without it being filtered through the lens of politics or race is we have more in common than we thought and we're seeking a lot of the same goals. And so um, on Sunday, there's going to be an armed march to the Capitol, folks who are very pro-Second Amendment, um, but who also um, are for the First Amendment because they understand the Constitution of the United States. Um, I'm going to be walking with a bunch of uh, white militia members. And that actually, I think, is... I think we need more of that because it shows that dialogues are happening across stereotypically disparate and polar opposite groups. And if those two groups, if a, you know, self-proclaimed like Black Panther lover can meet with uh, militiamen and find common ground, then there's no reason why a conservative and a liberal can't find common ground on these issues. I'm really touched by that. It gives me an insight into your unique life ministry <laughs> and this really complicated road where you're an activist, you want things to change, you see things that need to change, you're very passionate, you've dedicated your life to that, but you're also doing it in a way of building bridges between very the very groups that sometimes you're trying to change. <laughs> and it's a, it's a remarkable... Um, mission ministry you've undertaken. And I have to think Heavenly Father or Heavenly Parents are with you that if they were here, they'd say everything in your life has prepared you for this right now. And all your gifts and skills and contributions and education experience, that mission, joining the church, understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ has, has, has put you in this position to do this in this community at this time. Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel prepared. Um, the hard thing about understanding multiple sides and multiple groups is that it's very lonely. It's very lonely. Very few people want to hear nuance nowadays. They want you to be firmly in their camp. You're either for us, you're, you're against us. You're either for us or against us. And I go, but wait a minute. <laughs> and, then, and then they can't like package me to fit their agenda and they get frustrated and write me off. So I have a lot of people who disagree with the work that I'm doing in law enforcement and activism um, on all sides, actually. But I'm human first. You know, I wasn't born an activist. I wasn't born um, this racialized person that came later because of society, because of cultures. I was born human. I was born a part of 
a human family and I haven't forgotten that. And so part of being human and part of being part of this family, dysfunctional though it may be, means I need to try and understand my brothers and sisters and hopefully they'll take the time to try and understand me. It's a lot of grace in that. I'm thinking you're one of the very best examples I've seen in my lifetime of Brene Brown's work, Braving the Wilderness. Mm -hmm. I encourage our listeners to read that book. It helps me understand those that are trying to accomplish things. And one of the statements of that book is this place that some people get where you belong everywhere, but you belong nowhere. That's me. (laughs) And I thought of that statement in that book when I, and the fact that you are marching. I mean, just the, all the spaces you're in, to me, there's so much beauty in your life mission and who you are, but that sense of belonging is harder because you just don't, don't get fit. into your camp and sort of develop commu- a common enemy intimacy is one of the things Brene taught me is where if the bond we share is just that we hate the same people, that creates real connection. It does. But it's not long. It just, to me, it's not sustainable and it adds to our anxiety and our stress and so much of that is occurring in America that I, I admire you not just belonging everywhere, but still having your core life mission mm-hmm. that you're not com- compromising and in fact maybe more effective at it because of what you're willing to do, and you may be criticized for it definitely um, <laughs> because people would see you marching with that militia and say we well, either for us or you're against us, mm-hmm. and I had that very binary mentality until I read Brene Brown's book and I recognized. I don't need to compromise anything. I'm not selling out what I believe is a committed Latter-day Saint, for example, sure. to understand and and find common ground. As to your words, we're all the same human family. If we go to the 40,000-foot level, which is part of our doctrine, we're all spiritual brothers and sisters from the same heavenly parents. Mm-hmm. So um, that's really cool. You have a really unique life mission we're recording this podcast on August 26th, and my my college-age um, jazz fan, BYU son, walked in the door and told me that the Bucks had just canceled their NBA game, if I've got that right. And he was so happy because of the, the Jacob Blake incident in Wisconsin. Um, and he re- and then I read a tweet. I'll read this tweet. It's from a young man who grew up in our neighborhood, active LDS, returned missionary, just an outstanding young man, Max Metcalf. I personally have studied police brutality much more because of the NBA. It absolutely will influence my vote in, in November. I'm a pretty typical white kid who is an average NBA fan, and influencing fo- folks for me is exactly the reason for boy po- boycotting the game. Good job. And I just recognize this <laughs> this young man and my son who's sort of in the same space have um have no have learned. And to me that is great. It gives me hope for the future. Not everybody's gonna be like these two, my son and his friend, but I recognize the gro- the personal growth and understanding and the ins and you know, just the things that you're doing that more people are understanding and the role of the MBA and the privilege to use the privilege of the MBA and the way they're using that privilege um, to bring voice to this. To me, that's the responsibility of organizations and the media and 
And so that makes me happy. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, of course, getting so emotional listening to you share that tweet because that is what's possible when we when we take a step back and just are willing to, even if we're not willing or if we're too scared to have a conversation with someone who appears at face value fundamentally opposite of what we are and everything we think we stand for. Um, just that willingness to do some research based on the perspectives of another, a willingness to do research that isn't put out by someone who backs and and promotes everything that I back and promote, but maybe from an opposing side and and gather some information that way. Um, it gives me hope. I am so fundamentally grateful for what the NBA players are doing with their platform. And especially here in Utah, the Utah Jazz have just earned my respect in recent years, just how they have kind of been at the forefront of these conversations on race for a couple of years now. You know, they're not new to this. Um, Donovan Mitchell leading um, by example and and speaking up as often as he does. Like, I appreciate that so much. I kind of wish, I kind of wish we had done this when Colin Kaepernick took a knee. And how much further along would we be now if we had simply listened instead of getting offended? Agreed. It wouldn't have cost me anything to listen. And maybe we would have saved a few more lives. Yeah, now you got me kind of choked up. <laughs> I'm remembering some of the things the Jazz did now. Um, Gil Miller coming out before the game after that racial incident, one of our fans mm -hmm. treating a black... Um, Classmate. Yeah, um, and Gail Miller walking out on the court and just talking about that it'd be kind of behavior is not going to be acceptable. And I think we banned some fans for life. Mm -hmm. And I just, I was grateful we did that. And we're not perfect as a community, but I, and I'm a big Donovan Mitchell fan, <laughs> a jazz fan. We're in the middle of the playoffs right now. By the time you're hearing this, if you're a jazz fan, you'll know what happened to us, but I do think that that's the, and that's probably the responsibility of religious organizations. And I know that some wish our church um, was more active in these spaces. And I, I think that some, you know, look at uh, religious organizations' responsibility, the most marginalized, and sort of say they ought to start there first and work there. And I look at Christ with the Canaanite woman. I look at all the things that Christ did to be with marginalized people all the time. The people society said he shouldn't be with, he was with anyway. Yep. <laughs> and he sort of brought them back into full moral inclusion. Um, and so I recognize that we just have work to do as a committed, faithful Latter-day Saint. It doesn't cost me anything to recognize my own faith has work to do and to be able to not only believe in my faith, but have enough belief in my faith to be able to look inward and see the things that my own faith needs to improve on. Well, and with, that doesn't, and to me that just is part of my responsibility. Absolutely. And with regards to that, 
One of the greatest gifts that Latter-day Saints receive upon baptism is the gift of the Holy Ghost. And that is the promise that a member of the Godhead will be your constant companion. And I get that people value and and cherish that they're... Um, if you're active Latter-day Saint, that there is a, a living prophet on the earth who speaks to God. That's great. What I will say is how much cooler it is to have a member of the Godhead as your constant companion directing you. One of the founding principles of the church is personal revelation. Uh, the church was started because Joseph Smith had a question and he took it to God and received his own personal revelation. There's nothing that says that members of the church cannot use their baptismal gift of the Holy Ghost and their right to personal revelation to receive instruction directly from Heavenly Father on how they should be engaging in this moment, in this movement, without regards to whether or not the leaders have spoken for or against this. Yes, there are those who would like them to, but members do not have to sit and wait on the sidelines until they do. There's nothing that says you have to. In fact, um, by having the gift of the Holy Ghost, by by believing in personal revelation, I would say quite the opposite is true. You know, a lot of the times you talk about in church um, that you receive revelation when you're out and doing rather than just sitting there waiting for something to happen. So you don't just like pray about it and just when Heavenly Father directs the prophet to say something, then you'll move. Pray about it. Take your decision to move forward with that um, on that course, whatever you feel instructed to do to God. And if you don't get a no, then valiantly move forward and, and you'll be surprised what happens. That's a great segment to end on. That's um, thank you so much for being on our podcast. And I learned and um, that's part of the, That's the name of the podcast. Listen, learn, and then we can love better. And to me, love is the core doctrine of our church. It's all alike unto God. It's bear, mourn, and comfort. But, you know, I just recognize that I, I have the trap of unearned opinions where I developed opinions about groups of people. And I think it's better to not develop opinions about groups of people until I meet with people in those groups and listen to them. That's not very complicated, but... You know, we're all going to develop those opinions whether we want to or not. That's just a given. Let's accept that and be a little bit uh, gracious with ourselves. Where we run into trouble is when we refuse to move past those opinions based on personal experiences or facts that um, are presented to us that inform us that our opinions were misguided. Well said. So, Josiane Petit, thank mm -hmm. you for joining us on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Um, you have a Facebook group. Yeah. Facebook, will you tell people how to connect with you? Yeah. So if they look up Mama and Papa Panthers on Facebook, there's a Facebook page. If you send a message through the Facebook page, I'm the one who gets it. I'll respond. Um, feel free to look for me on, uh, on Facebook, Josiane Petit, J-O-S-I-A-N-N-E, last name P-E-T-I-T. -T. It's the inverse currently on Facebook, but who knows? I may change it over time. So probably the best way to find me is through the Mama and Papa Panther Facebook page. Thank you. And thank our listeners. This is Richard Osler, your host, signing off on, from another episode. Mm -hmm.